Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. This year, we're celebrating Halloween by dropping a new episode every single Monday in the month of October. And if you do the math, that's five episodes, I think. Yes, but not just regular episodes. We're changing the format of our club meetings just a little bit, and we're going to be joined every week by a special guest to discuss a classic horror film of their choosing. We won't have our regular features, there won't be a podcast companion, but we'll be providing plenty of holiday content right here and on our respective blogs. And did I mention there are five Mondays in October? We invite you to celebrate with us by leaving your comments and or feedback. You can do that by joining our Facebook group page, or you can email us at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. Well, I guess some things will carry over from our regular format, but Richard... I am taking a different turn with that response, and I want to say I appreciate that you do that and bring that to our podcast. So thank you. My, my thank you. You caught me off guard. I thought I might. Here today to discuss the 1980 film The Changeling is our good friend Jonathan Angarola. Hi, guys. Good to see you. How are you? I'm doing great. Just really excited to talk about The Changeling. We discussed this offline, and there were so many options. I mean, it's Halloween season. I mean, you can take your pick from thousands of films. But I kind of feel like The Changeling is still kind of flies under the radar. I was definitely in the mood to talk about a ghost story, haunted house. We have plenty, haunted house story. We have plenty of those, you know, as you guys have seen many, many, many of them. But I feel like this one just flies under the radar. I feel like it's kind of an understated haunted house story, whereas something like Amityville Horror or The Shining, like, is right, is in your face. And those are great movies. I, I love them. Maybe it was the mood I was in. It's kind of understated. It's a little melancholy. It's a little gloomy. Um, there are a lot of top 10 lists, top 20 lists for horror film, like, subgenres. And I feel like this one does sneak in, in a top 10, definitely in a top 20. But still, I feel like it hasn't been seen by, for genre fans, there's a lot of genre fans have seen it, but I feel like beyond that, they've definitely seen, the, most of them have seen The Shining, your casual film goer i've seen the shining i've seen probably seen amityville horror maybe the haunting this one uh just flies under the radar and it it's great and, and this is totally by a happy well it's not a happy accident new york is new york city where i live is inundated right now with water from storms and this movie is all about water and it, those themes are so like prevalent yesterday when i was re-watching the movie we're just this, this continual downpour and watching the pl- flooding and everything this is a perfect time to talk talk about this movie. That's I know not... the movie used to get a lot of love over at the Horror Etc. podcast because mm. one of the hosts of that show, Anthony Mann, this was one of his all-time favorite films. It was certainly his all-time favorite ghost story. He would talk about this movie quite frequently. I'm curious, because I know this was recently on Joe Bob, Last Driving with Joe Bob Briggs over at Shutter. I don't know if it's still up there or not because I know sometimes they're licensing on those movies causes those episodes to disappear. Did you see the Joe Bob version or which version did you watch? No, I wish I had. And I think they took it down because I remember that he had done it and I wanted to go back and watch his take on it. But no, I don't think it's up there anymore. This is a film I've seen in several formats over the years, but I did recently pick up the Severin 
Blu-ray, which has some really good special features and a lot about the backstory and Chessman Park in Denver and uh, the hauntings that supposedly went on there. I would love to hear Joe Bob's take. He did well with that. As, well, Joe Bob usually does well, you know, offering yeah. up behind the scenes stuff. But it was a fun episode offering up some of the behind the scenes, which I can't quite remember now, unfortunately, because he just throws so much at you. And unfortunately, the DVD, which is how I watched it, yeah. didn't have any extras. It was the original uh, HBO Films DVD. Jeff, I mean, which version did you watch? Of, of- I also have the Blu-ray from Severin. And my history with this is I saw it probably close to when it came out and I didn't like it. I mean, of course, I was younger. I thought it was kind of slow, not really very scary. I don't know that I've ever really watched it again, but it does have so much love. I ordered that Blu-ray. I thought, well, I'm going to like it now and we'll <laughs> find out if I did or not. But I didn't watch any of the special features. Gotcha. gotcha. How about you guys? Like, Jonathan, you've seen it many times. It sounds like Rich. How about you? Do you remember a first time and what your first feelings about it were? I remember watching this on HBO back in the 80s and liking it and then not seeing it for, oh gosh, a very long time, maybe 30 years, when horror, et cetera, were hitting their stride. Pretty sure they covered it in one of their episodes. But I remember Anthony Mann talking about it a lot. And I was like, yeah, yeah I want to seek that out. I was adding a bunch of movies. That's when I acquired my copy of it. And, and I've watched it several times since that i've watched the dvd probably three times in addition to seeing the joe bob version six times roughly five or six times that i've seen this film and as we'll talk about my love for the for the movie has always been there and just continues it's there's a lot to like in this film and i get there's some obstacles that some people have to get past george c scott's an acquired taste not everyone likes his mm-hmm. style I don't have a, a recollection of the very first time, but I'm guessing it was probably on cable, maybe on HBO. I feel like it benefits from repeated watches. Some films don't always. And it is definitely a slow burn. And it also depends on how, honestly, how lucid and how awake you are when you're watching it. Like if this is one of those movies, if it's late at night and you're tired or you're going to struggle probably, especially as you have that like lilting and that sad score that starts from the beginning of the movie and that kind of could put you in a little bit of a trance and you might tune out but if you're nice and lucid and awake (laughs) there are a lot of things you can pick up it's got a style like you said the late 70s early 80s of the genre there were a lot of slow burns and there was that kind of oftentimes the scores were not bombastic and in your face they were just kind of level set a little more melancholy. Sometimes they had something catchy, but that time period, yeah, requires you to be awake. Yeah, so not a film that you're going to want to watch, you know, on, on the midnight, late, late movie. Yeah. Interestingly, have, like, though, that was you know the fault I found with it the first time I watched it. I actually didn't find it slow this time, and maybe it's just because of how I had perceived it for so many years yeah. that anything yeah. would have felt faster compared to that. And also, Jonathan, I want to point out, you said the music from the very beginning. Actually, the first note I made was the there is no music at the beginning. It's just the sound of the wind howling. And Uh, then you see the winter countryside and it just really sets the scene and brings you in. And we talk, Richard, a lot about movies that are perfect, like on a rainy day or whatever. This is a perfect movie to sit on the couch on a cold day with maybe a fire in the fireplace. If you have one wrapped in a blanket, 
I wholeheartedly agree. Preferably not a two-story house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> with an attic bedroom. With an attic bedroom and a red ball. No. Oh, God, no, 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 no. No, you're right. That opening scene. I agree. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking when he first, uh, you see him on Lincoln Center and. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely the music that. is fantastic in this, but I that was a point I just right, wanted to make. That kind of draws you in. Well, it's very kind of bleak. I'm not sure the sun shines at all. There's establishing shots, obviously, in New York in the beginning. It was fun to see O'Neill's. When he walks across the street from Lincoln Center, O'Neill's was a law, was a restaurant that folks that after seeing like the Met Opera or uh, the ballet or or the Philharmonic would go to, to O'Neill's. It's now PJ Clark's, but it's still a restaurant, still right on that corner. So he walks right by it. It was fun. I mean, we don't spend a lot of time in New York um, in the movie, but it's fun to see that. Otherwise, I think. I know it's supposed to be there are a few establishing shots in Seattle, but I think a lot of it was filmed in Vancouver. I don't know if you guys looked at some of, some of the production notes, but at least that's the sense I got. I think a lot of it was filmed in Vancouver, which has a lot of overcast. All the sets were in Vancouver and the house. Technically, I guess you could say, yes, it was in Vancouver, but not exactly what we'd expect. We'll talk about that in a little bit. I assume you two love this movie. I will just say right off the bat, I, I really did not. I still didn't like it. Definitely, it's creepy, it's atmospheric, there's all that. I just praise the opening of it. But just the whole thing, I'm just still not really a fan. So I would like to hear from you guys beyond just the, oh, it's scary, if that's even one of the reasons you like it. What are some other reasons that you like it? For me, at least, although I can take my ghost stories in a number of ways, I like when there's a story that you have to unravel. There's intrigue. You get some sense of the haunting, but have no idea why and in what context. So, and there's, you know, you know, there's going to be something unseemly or even worse when you start to uncover it. But I love a good mystery unraveling of a story, uh, which, you know, this has. And it doesn't take a long time to unravel it, I suppose, when Claire and John start to do their um, investigations. That's one of my problems is that it doesn't take very long. They're pretty no, no, right. it's not figuring it's, it out. Right, right. If your enjoyment's going to hinge on a, maybe a more elaborate or more layers, then no, it doesn't. But, uh, and it's interesting because, you know, one of my other favorite, which I'm sure I'm not alone here, is The Haunting, another, uh, the original, not the 1990 remake. Abomination. Um, yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> that movie tells you all you need to know about the house. Like in the first minute, this is a house it was born bad and all that. So there's no mystery there. I made some notes here because there are just so many things I really enjoy. But And it's been done in many movies, probably a lot since this movie, is uh, the medium scene. That's a great scene, particularly after, after actually after the seance, when John is listening to the tapes and he's just like staying up all night. He's about to keel over. He does pass out and just absorbing this information and hearing this child's voice, Joseph's voice. That's extremely eerie. You rarely hear the voice of a ghost in the majority of, you know, you see, or in the haunting, you never see anything, but you know, there'll be writing on the wall or, you know, furniture will move or, you know, all kinds of it. But really, you just hear the voice outright the way you hear Joseph's voice. So I thought that's very, that was very effective. Another set piece that I love is the well. Am I giving, are we, are we spoiling? Are we okay with this? I'm kind of jumping around here. I think we're okay. Okay, okay. Actually, I won't say much more than that, but the well at the other house with yeah. Joseph, yeah. very effective. It gets kind of, I feel my hair stand up a little bit during that sequence. As an adult, I can only imagine being a child seeing that. I already mentioned the score is great. We can talk, we'll probably spend time just talking about the house and the exterior, that facade that they built for the house, which is amazing. 
It was much better than a Roger Corman, you know, stock footage, house burning at the end. And I think the other strong points of the cast, I think George C. Scott, who I do love, he and Trish Vanderveer, they're, they were a husband and wife, if I understand that. I don't know if you guys read that too at the time. Great chemistry and Melvin Douglas, who I realized was also in the next year. And I think he put with Ghost Story, which I haven't watched in like decades. So I need to go back to that one. That was probably his last role, I'm guessing, because I think he passed away. There are so many things, but some great set pieces, great music, great mood. Any film, especially a genre film, a horror film that can put you in like where that mood settles on you. The exteriors, the settings and the music and all that. If you can do that, it's already kind of won me over, at least in part. But yes, you do need a a story. And I agree, uh, Jeff, it's not the most complex. There are no surprises necessarily. The unraveling, it does come fairly early in the in the story. Well, it is. I think it is fairly complex, but they figure it out awful quickly. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Rich, how about you? What are some of the things you really liked about it? I love its atmosphere. It's very atmospheric from the opening frames. You've got the bleak winter setting, and then it just is a very, it feels late fall perpetually throughout the, the whole movie. The overall kind of gloominess I appreciate it in this film, and I like the slower pace. Sometimes you need a good variety of films, and I, I appreciate a movie that is going to come at you, bam, bam, bam. Sometimes I appreciate a film that's just nothing but jump scares. I do also appreciate, though, kind of the slow burn if it's done well. And I think it's done well here. I can understand why it might not be your cup of tea if it's if you're wanting something to move along a little quicker I love the aspect of trying to unravel a mystery and not having everything answered. Sometimes it's fun just to have a ghost story where, yep, this is a haunted house. Things go bump in the house. Satan is present, whatever the case may be. Sometimes it's fun to unravel a mystery. And this one here is, I think, is is well done. I just, I like the, the overall feel of the film. And I think the cast, again, as I was saying, George C. Scott is an acquired taste. I like George C. Scott. He brings something unique to his role. He's a very unique individual. And if you look at his filmography, there's some pretty iconic films. The Hustler, Dr. Strangelove, Patton, which he was an Academy Award winner for that. The Hindenburg, which hopefully we'll cover someday on the show. He was in A Christmas Carol in 1984 as Scrooge. I thought he did wonderful as Scrooge. Some people love him. You know, they they are, you know, he's their favorite Scrooge. Now, he doesn't serve, he's not my favorite. As we all know, Alistair Sim is my favorite. I also really like Patrick Stewart, but I do like George C. Scott. I don't watch his version every year, but about every two or three years, I'll bring it out and enjoy it. Of course, he was in Firestarter, which is a lesser film. I love him in The Exorcist 3, which is a lot of fun. Some people don't like some of his own personal take on life, I guess. For example, he refused the Best Actor Award. He felt that each role should not be in competition against others, that they should all be taken individually, which is actually, I like that take on it. His thought on the awards and the whole process, he called it a meat parade. So that definitely did not earn him any fans. I like him in this movie as John Russell. I think you feel his anguish in that opening scene when he's witnessing the death of his daughter and his wife. You feel it. You know his anguish. When you see him wake up in bed or is in bed crying, man, gut-wrenching, gut-wrenching. Anyone who's lost 
a spouse or lost a child knows that pain. Unfortunately, I do. And so I looked at this film very differently the last couple of times I've watched it because it's come at a different point in my life. I know his anguish. I know his pain. And then the process of trying to move forward and, and get on with life and try to enjoy what some of the things that life has to offer. And then in the midst of all this, hey, here's a haunted house that's going to screw up your grief and recovery process and just really cause all sorts of havoc. There's some really great supporting actors in this. We talked about Melvin Douglas. Very brief, but John Kalikos is Captain DeWitt. Star Trek reference for John Kalikos. Barry Morris as a parapsychologist. You've got some great supporting cast. You've got some really chilling scenes. The the infamous ball scene always gets me as it's like, what would you do in that, that scenario? You've taken this red ball, you have thrown it in the river, and you come back home and the damn thing comes bouncing down the stairs. I, for one, it's kind of like that Eddie Murphy did the routines. People go to a house. Oh, lovely home, lovely home. Get out. Too bad we can't stay. <laughs> you know, the ball comes bouncing down the, the stairs. I'm done. Packing my bags. Might not even wait to do that. Time to go. You make so many good points, Rich. I'm, to- I'm aligned in pretty much everything you say, but especially about George C. Scott and a Christmas cow. It's it's risen in my ranking of Christmas and still not Alistair Sim level, but, but I'm with you on that. But Going back to John Russell, his character, I feel like he doesn't oversell the anguish. Like he, I think he's just the right, you know, not that there's a right way to portray grieving and anguish, but I feel like he doesn't oversell it. And what I so fascinating about the story is John Russell does not scare easily. Clearly, maybe even partially because of what he's been through. He's like, I've been through the worst. So even though he's clearly freaked out, he also is like on board, especially when he finds out what's reaching out to him or yeah. who's reaching out to him. He doesn't scare easily. And I think that's a more, that's kind of really interesting um, take on it as opposed to he just goes to pieces every time glass yeah. shatters. <laughs> you get the sense that he's more internally disturbed. It's like yeah. he doesn't have that moment where he has the the freak out face. And yeah. That's not his character. He's internally disturbed by yeah. what's happening here. It's causing other feelings to resurface and he's dealing with those on one level and dealing with this mystery that he's found himself in. And then he becomes on, he's on a quest. He wants to solve the answer. He wants to help whoever find peace. Right. Which really correlates to his own personal loss and and wanting to assure. I think that's his thought process, right? He's lost his wife. He's lost his daughter. There's that connection that develops as the, as the plot moves on mm-hmm. to his daughter and the thought of like, you know, hoping that his daughter is at peace. And here's somebody here that needs to be at peace. His own personal background coming into the film makes him the perfect person to help solve this ghostly mystery. You both pointed out some fantastic things about the movie, but they're related to some of my issues with them. So I have no issue with George C. Scott. I do think he's a great actor. But did he really show us how he was grieving? It's four months between the, and he's great during the accident. You're right. Like he's in that phone booth and for some reason he can't get out, but that doesn't really matter. I mean, you're so flustered. What would you do? You're pushing instead of pulling. And if he got out, what could he have done? You know, so that's all very good. And then it's four months later and he seems pretty well adjusted. He starts his class with a laugh and playing the piano. He goes to the symphony and seems in very good spirits 
granted, I'm sure it's a somewhat of a, a cover that you have to still be suffering. But when it comes to that scene where he's crying in bed, it's a big jump. Like we haven't really seen that he hasn't completely recovered. It, it seems like too big of a, a swing. Can I stop you right there? Yeah, sure. Having experienced that, that is 100% spot on. Okay. Think about when when you and I met back in, in July of 2016. Yeah, you sometimes you'd have to sit there and hear me go on and on about stuff. And God love you for listening there and not smacking me around. But <laughs> when we first met, I mean, I, I was, you know, we were going and doing things and going to movies and stuff like that. And, and you know, we're having a good, good time. I could go out and have and have friend, you know, good times with friends. Wednesday nights, I'd get together with a friend. We'd watch The Walking Dead or whatever. And I'd be all happy and cheerful. And then within a matter of minutes on the drive home, it would hit me again that I'm going home. And my home is dark and empty except for my dogs. There's nobody waiting for me. I could drive around for the next six hours and not a damn person would know or care. And all of a sudden that just, it overwhelms you. And sometimes you just, you wake up and reality smacks you in the face. Hey, remember what you lost? And all of a sudden you can go from being laughing to crying really quick. Anyone who experiences that knows that what he's done is absolutely spot on. You can have appearance of life is going on. He's teaching, he's playing piano. And then a trigger, something will trigger you. And then bam, you're in bed sobbing like a baby because you're reminded of what you've lost. It hits you like that. When I saw this in the past, aside from the Joe Bob time that I saw it, there was no correlation. So I didn't see that at all. And I didn't even think about it. I look at it very differently now because I've experienced that. This is one of those things where sometimes as you watch movies through the course of your life, your own personal life experiences impact you one way or another, and you look at things differently. So, and not that I'm disagreeing with you, Jeff, but just no. from my perspective, I think it's spot on. I can also see, because had having seen this movie before I had those personal life events, uh, I very likely thought the same thing as you. It's like, wow, you know, it's like he was seemed fine, and now he's just crying randomly in bed. It's I appreciate like, that, and you're right. I don't have that experience, so not going to argue that. I So thank yeah. you. Everyone looks at it differently from a different perspective. Okay. So how about, I think, Jonathan, you said he's not afraid. I like that he's an older man, and that's unusual. Where's the pretty young girl in a tight T-shirt that's in a haunted house screaming and being chased? You know, this is refreshing. But the fact that he's not afraid, where's the threat? Where's the suspense? And he does have his moments where he, but it's more of a, sort of almost a medical thing, him passing out or clutching his chest and falling down or something. So for some reason that, yeah, it's creepy and it's atmospheric, but I don't think it's very suspenseful or scary. Yeah. If that yeah, makes I, any sense. No, I know. I totally know what you're saying. I think he's definitely freaked out at times. Obviously, you know, he'll do little things like push himself. Like when the ball comes out, he pushes himself back against the door. And I think his fear is not so much of this particular scenario or this situation. It's where it's going to take him emotionally. He said, I can't go back there. Yeah. Like, do you remember when he said that? And he's talking about the house. He's like, I can't go through that again. When I forget what scene, but you guys know the moment where he says yeah. that. Well, I think that's maybe the threat for him. He doesn't seem threatened by Joseph. 
or even as Joseph gets more powerful, you know, as he's able to do more in the house and at the point where he's doing like. It's fear of that internal struggle that he's going through, as you said. I know his. there's a lot there that could be interpreted about his loss. And I think, did someone say to him that the spirit was connecting to him through his loss? Is that, did that open him up to, I got that impression and I'm, I'm sure you could say there's correlation one of you did say the the fact, you know, he's trying to save his daughter by saving this. I think it it made him more open to accepting the possibility and, and, and wanting to know more and to try to help. If somebody didn't have that connection, wouldn't be as open-minded about things when you experience loss. Sometimes you experience things differently and sometimes you begin to think about, well, life after death or whatever. I mean, when we're young and we haven't experienced loss and, and we've never really known anybody who's died other than great Aunt Gertrude or whatever. But when it starts to come closer to you, whether it's the loss of a friend, which unfortunately happens as we start to get older, sometimes when we're younger, though. But I mean, when you experience a loss close to you, a friend, a parent, what have you, you begin to ask questions. What is there life after death? What happens? Where do we go? What? So I think his loss left him open personally, mentally, Mm -hmm. to accept that there's something going on here. I get the impression that if maybe this would have happened before the loss of his family, I don't see that he would have been open-minded. I think he would have have been one of those gruff guys, ah, this isn't haunted. I could see him doing that, but because he's experienced this loss, because it has to do with a child, there's answers that he's asking himself maybe about his own family and daughter. And now this is a real world thing, making him connected to it in a unique, unique. Well, way. and that's the other thing. Not only doesn't he feel fear or is he frightened? He does never question it. I mean, he accepts what's happening right from the start. Yeah. I have yeah. another question. So the house is haunted. It's basically a house, haunted house movie. How then are things happening in a house built somewhere else. This is crazy to criticize a horror movie because something doesn't make sense. But how does the ball get from a river far away back to the house? That implies that the reach of the spirit goes beyond the house that it's contained in. I think that scene would have been much more effective if he had walked out in the backyard and tossed it into a pond that's on the property. And then it comes back because all it made me do was question, how did that happen? Yeah. And then further, the boy, he's angry primarily because he was killed by his father. But there's this assumption that he was killed so they could bring in basically an imposter to take his place to protect the family wealth and inheritance and all that. And that this imposter has become this rich, powerful senator. And there's a scandal and a secret to hide all that. (laughs) How does a dead little boy know that all of that happened after he died and is his vengeance part of that and it maybe it's not maybe that's coincidental because the movie gives me the impression well what he really wants is that senator to be killed and to be punished for what happened maybe that's george c scott's punishment because there's really no connection that when the senator does die everything's over Everything's over when the house burns down. Mm. Any comments about any of that stuff to help me understand? 
I don't think there's any like real world explanation, like the ball. I think, I don't know if that's what the astral projection scene at the end where, where um, Senator Carmichael's walking up the stairs, which I love that scene. And that fire down the banister is just, oh, it's great. And that chandelier deserves major props. I love the chandelier too. We can get into production stuff, but that was awesome. Yeah, there isn't as far as I know, and I don't know about you, Rich, but I just feel like it's Joseph's righteously angry and he's growing in power for lack of a better yeah. word. Yeah. How do you take a ball out of that inlet and drop it back down? I, Some movies do that, right? Where a spirit is locked in to a particular location. Sometimes I can't name any, but I know I've seen some films where spirit has a little more flexibility in its reach. <laughs> How is that possible? To me, it seems much more likely that the spirit would be connected to a, a place if, if it's in a stuck pattern, right? And not being able to move forward, move on, mm-hmm. you know, it would be connected to, to this house. And, but I've seen some stuff where sometimes they, I think episodes of Supernatural talked about something they thought was connected to a location and they resolve that, but actuality, it doesn't resolve the unsettled spirit. The spirit has the ability to move about a little bit more. And what would have put the spirit at peace anything it's not discovering the body and like bearing it properly it's that in a lot of movies you know is it just needs to be put at peace and and by the way i know this movie came first but is it an influence on movies like well ghost story is very similar in some ways but even if you go up to the ring where it's a mystery to find out why this spirit is restless and it's because she was killed and dumped in a well which is Basically, what happened to this little boy? Right, right. Yeah, but, I don't know. Um, that's a really good question. Um, also, think, Jeff, though, the ball, I, I do think that if, if it would have been on a pond or something on the property, might have been a little bit more believable. I had never thought about that before. Mm-hmm. I always just thought that was such a great scene where he like, gets rid of it and the damn thing comes back. It would make more sense if it would have if he would have gotten rid of it on the property somewhere. But I guess the idea of like throwing in the river would be like really getting it away and deep rather than just a pond. I think it's supposed to have more impact. You're right. Like in other movies, if there's an evil doll or something, you throw it in the garbage can and then it's back again. And that's definitely seems at least more plausible. As far as how Joseph knows, I don't know. Maybe he went to the library. He's going through those microfiche. I love it. I love a good <laughs> microfiche when the two of them are Claire and John are going through the. And I know that's it. Almost a trope of these uh, movies, but I enjoy and Claire is very eagle-eyed. No matter how fast he's speeding up, she goes, stop, right yeah. there. Yes, she's, got it. Yeah. she's an expert in microfiche, obviously. I think with spirits, though, in some of the movies, too, their knowledge fluctuates from the movie, right? Sometimes they're pretty knowledgeable about events, yeah. and other times it's like they're stuck in their moment. To them, they're stuck in their moment of death, and they have no correlation of what happened afterwards, where sometimes spirits are very aware of the passage of time. And in this case, clearly, there's some knowledge of, of events that happened after death and uh, around. It's kind of like vampire lore varies from film to film. You know, it's like, how do you kill a vampire? Yeah, it can be a stumbling point for you. Yeah, I, good points. I don't have an answer for those it. Those things don't usually bother me. But for some reason in this, they did, I guess, because it is such a serious George C. Scott carries a lot of weight. I do want to circle back to one last point, and that is, again, with the mystery and the plot and how either it's simple or it's complicated. 
I didn't know who people were. I didn't know Barry Morse was a parapsychologist. I knew he went to see him and ask him a question. Mm-hmm. I didn't know whose house they were going to, to look in the bedroom of the little girl. Now, to mm-hmm. contradict that, it all makes sense at the end. It comes together and I wasn't confused about what was happening. But along the way, I was several times going, wait, who's that? Wait, what's happening? I need to rewind. I missed that point. It does end up being very simple, but I, I do think getting there was a little complicated. No, and there are some confusing moments. Put most simply, it's a story about we have the changeling, we have the switching the orphan for after Joseph's father murders him. and But like there are a lot of steps there where there's that scene where Claire and John are in the car. This is kind of like their conversations giving us the exposition of like, you know, what were the steps involved? You know, there's this vast inheritance that he'll stand to get if he can get. But there are a few steps that I mi- I always miss there. I'm trying to listen to their conversation. And I maybe it's just my simple mind, but I I, mi- I feel like I missed some of the, how we got from point A to, I get the gist, but yeah. the details, I'm, I'm a little lost on. And it's still after having seen it several times. There's definitely some key points that they do gloss over. I'm with you. I didn't know that Barry Morris was a parapsychologist until I saw him credited that way. I knew his character, but I didn't understand entirely what his role was. I agree that the leap to the house there's some great scenes there. You know, I felt very claustrophobic when they were down in that well. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking again, this is the white guy in me, right? It's like, there's no way in hell if this house is haunted and I'm going to put myself at the bottom of a well where I'm looking, basically, I'm going into the den of the, of the spirit. No way I'm doing that. And this little rickety old ladder is my only way out of this hole. I've seen enough horror movies to know that that does not end well nine times out of ten. Props on George C. Scott for going to the bottom of this this well to try to find this necklace. Well, and is that before or after like the metal starts to come out of the ground? Talk well, about yeah, this power. Yeah, I think, oh my god, he's making it like it was I a quick scene. It always makes me think about the after. Is there any way if you're that little girl that you're going to be able to sleep in that bed, knowing even once they fill that well back up? No. They got to move. <laughs> no, oh, that's it. That's it. <laughs> you're done. You're done. House for sale. Time to go. For whatever reason, I really enjoy the scene. It's very short and it just gets us to that house. But the scene where he's with that guy going through the legends, the giant books with the property, the Carmichael, and he goes, this is 1905 and this is 1920. I kind of enjoyed that. I don't know why. I just enjoy that scene. And he's like, oh, wait, all of a sudden there's no well on the in the 1924 legend and but he sees where the house is and then he goes i don't know why i just enjoyed the watching them go through those giant books <laughs> it was kind of cool. did anyone catch much about behind the scenes i think i caught here or there that maybe there was a script rewrite i know there were originally two directors that passed for creative differences with mm. the producers or producer and i think there was a rewrite and then i even thought i picked up that it was maybe heavily edited there towards the end. So I just wonder if that has any impact on some of the feelings I have for it. When you pointed out about the scenes, it did make me think, was there some editing going on maybe to get the movie down to a running time? And maybe they said, oh, well, we'll just cut this or we'll cut this, you know, little snippets here and there. The editors do that all the time, right? We talked about that in our last episode, you know, Jeff, where sometimes the editor cuts things out why Why cut this out when you could have cut this out if you're trying to fit the movie in within a time frame? And I think sometimes it depends on how involved 
the director, the producer are, for example, in the editing process, because sometimes they're not as involved or sometimes they're too involved. Because sometimes, too, the director thinks, oh, well, people will get it if we cut this out, where he's not removed himself. He's not putting himself necessarily as an audience member anymore. He's too involved and he's thinking, well, we can cut this and this and the audience will get it. Sometimes the editor will do that without even thinking or caring what the audience is going to do. And the end result, we're sitting here thinking, yeah, but how did we get from point A to point C? What happened to point B? Well, point B is sitting on the cutting room floor because somebody thought we didn't need to know about it. Yeah, you do get a sense that there were definitely some edits that were maybe to cut the runtime down, particularly in the, although I love the uh, climactic sequence, like I think it's great, but it does feel little truncated like yeah i don't know there might have been some other i have a feeling there was going to be another aspect to that whole sequence which i love i love the fire down the banister again back to the awesome chandelier <laughs> senator carmichael going up to the room like that all worked really well but i got it you just feel like oh it feels just i don't know if rushed is a little strong but it feels like something might have been they might have cut something yeah. from that i don't know and i do think it's a very effective scene but i think it's a little manufactured I think arguably the most threatening scene where someone could really get hurt is when the wheelchair is chasing Claire through the house and she tumbles down the stairs and all that. But that's Claire. She's not the focus of the story. Dorsey Scott should be the one that is under the threat. It just felt a little like, okay, they've got to get something in here that's scary. Yep. So, I mean, they give her a reason to go to the house, but it's a little coincidental. I, I don't know. I had trouble with that. Do you well. want to see big George C. Scott running through the house? Being <laughs> I would have enjoyed that, actually, at least at, at least as a, like an out, not an outtake. But <laughs> yeah, well, that's why he goes up the stairs meant to be that what you're saying, Jeff. That's where, you know, let's put him in peril. So he's got to go. He goes up the stairs. Why True. he'd want to go up the stairs, I don't know. But <laughs> no you know. one's shy about going up to see what's happening in the attic. I know. It's like the I mean, nobody is. Again, these people don't watch movies. It's like if I'm in an old house like that, and there's like, oh, here's like a door that's been boarded up and nailed shut. There's a damn good reason that somebody <laughs> boarded it up. I'm not yeah. going up there. You know what? I bet. I remember a scene now. I think maybe this whole time he's just under the, he becomes under the influence. When he finds that door and he's banging to get the padlock off oh, and yeah. it's not having any luck and he hears the the banging that he first heard. When he picks that hammer up and goes again, it's in sync with that banging and that's when it breaks off. Mm -hmm. So maybe he has established this connection and it's affecting maybe the spirits helping him solve and that's why he's solving it so quickly. I don't know. It's almost like they're working I'm talking together. myself into trying to like <laughs> it more, yeah, more logic. <laughs> Who knows? They may have been at two plus hour running time at one point. Yeah. I could see a movie like this pushing uh, beyond uh, two hours. You know, there's some interesting characters we only get a snippet of. Maybe they had additional scenes. Rich, you want to tell us about some of those other actors and rest of the cast? Trish Vandeveer played Claire Norman. Lots of TV work from her, but her one claim to fame as far as this, besides this film is a movie called The Hearse. We've got Melvin Douglas as Senator Carmichael. He's got an interesting, some legit horror cred if you take a look. Now, he had Ghost Story, which came out the following year, 1981. That was his last role because he died in 1981 at the age of 80. But he also has some movies back in the 30s, going back in the beginning part of his career. He was in the movie Nanotchka in 1939, starring alongside Bela Lugosi. 
Even more horror cred, though, is he was in The Vampire Bat in 1933 and The Old Dark House in 1932 with Boris Karloff. I mean, he starred alongside Karloff and Lugosi. He doesn't get much more horror cred than that. Gene Marsh played the character of Joanna Russell. Small role, but worthy mentioning a strange Doctor Who connection here. (laughs) She was in 15 episodes of Doctor Who as the character Sarah Kingdom. She was a pseudo companion to the first doctor and she was actually the first companion to get killed off on doctor Mm -hmm. who which was kind of big for a children's show back in the 60s she was also in uh, let's see here episodes of the twilight zone she was also in willow towards the latter part of her career i was going to also say she was in other episodes of doctor who besides sarah kingdom so she came back and played multiple roles anyway some good doctor who cred there Star Trek cred goes to Mr. John Kalikos, who played Captain DeWitt, a small role, and ill-fated as it may be. He probably should never have left the police station that day. He plays the character of the Klingon Kur in classic Star Trek episode, Errand of Mercy. He was the very first Klingon we ever saw on screen, and he reprised that role three years later under makeup this time around in three episodes of Deep Space Nine. He also played Baltar in Battlestar Galactica. He was in The Six Million Dollar Man. Lots of TV work, including Night Gallery. Last but not least, Barry Morris, who was the uh, parapsychologist that we didn't know was a parapsychologist. Of course, he's known for playing Professor Victor Bergman in Space 1999. He was in The Martian Chronicles, The Invaders, Twilight Zone, Way Out. So again, some cred there. The screenplay was by William Gray, who also has some interesting creds. He wrote Prom Night, Humongous, The Philadelphia Experiment. Jeff, you'll appreciate this. He wrote two episodes of the 1991 version of Dark Shadows. Oh, wow. So we have a Doctor Who, Star Trek, and Dark Shadows connection in this episode. Trifecta. (laughs) It's also written by Diana Maddox, who is mostly an actress, but she does have three writing credits. And it was based on a story by Russell Hunter, who this is only one of only two credits for him. Directed by Peter Medak. All across the board on his stuff here. He actually directed the short film for Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon tour Mm -hmm. that was played during their concerts. He did some TV work. He also did Zorro the Gay Blade, because why not? And he did Species 2 and an episode of Masters of Horror. The only other little bit of trivia that I had here, well, I had a couple little things. I had that George C. Scott actually learned to play the piano for the scene that he had where he was teaching his students. He actually learned how to play it, which I thought was Mm -hmm. kind of a nice touch. I think we briefly mentioned that George and Trish were actually married at the time. They were married from 1972 until his death in 1999 at the age of 71 of a heart attack. And I'm thinking... So he was 71 when he died. He does not look like 51 in this movie. He looks a lot older than that. The house itself was not really the house. It was all a fake exterior. They couldn't find the house they were looking for. So they built this fake house. Basically, I think they would built it in front of an existing house. The exterior was built for $200,000. And the interiors, which I thought was amazing, those were all sets, not a real house, actually in Vancouver. Nowadays, it would all be CGI stuff. But you look back now, it's like, no, they built that entire house. That was amazing. The movie was award-winning. It won a, I had to laugh at this, but this was legit, a Genie Award 
for Best Canadian Picture. That was kind of, I guess, at one time, their pseudo Academy Award was the Genie Awards. The Genie Awards succeeded the Canadian Film Awards and then later became the Canadian Screen Awards in 2012. But between 1980 and 2012, they called them the Genie Awards. Best Canadian Picture, it also won seven other awards, including Best Actor and Actress. And that's about all I had extra on, on the Changeling. I don't know if you guys had anything, other little tidbits. Jeff and Rich, if you end up getting the Severin DVD, they'll get into all of that. There's a featurette on the production and the facade, all about the score. The gentleman, uh, God, I forget his name, but he worked with John Williams. And also about Chessman Park that inspired the story, that mansion, Chessman Park. That's two movies in Colorado that inspired, you know, you have... Oh, God, I'm blanking on the name of the hotel in Estes Park in Colorado that inspired Stephen King to do the shot, write The Shining. Overlook. Um, Overlook, yeah. That's the name in the movie. And then, but the actual name of the, oh, God, I'm totally blanking on it. Anyway, that's two structures in Colorado that were supposedly haunted. There's another featurette just about the production design and the interiors and how much detail they went that went into it with like the molding and the furnishings and not to mention i feel like half the budget went on those cobwebs in his room when they went up to joseph's room i was like those are some really good cobwebs yeah, that's um, good. Like, yes someone spent a lot of time i don't know what they use the hotel's name was the stanley hotel stanley and i've been there and i can't i haven't stayed there but i've seen stanley you got it you got it yep beautiful production design and i don't know there's something that in the climactic scene, like the, everything's kind of iridescent a little bit, the way um, they shot the fire sequence and all of that. From a production standpoint, I think it costs, I, at least this is in one of the feature rights, costs about $6 million to make, which seems, even by today's standards, not a bad budget. It's one of those underappreciated, I feel like there's something about the early 80s, these movies were not, you think about The Thing and Blade Runner and this one, I feel like there's a bunch of others just underappreciated at the time, but now are considered... Kind of critically, I mean, this one sounds like a good overall good critic. I think at the time, the focus was so much on science fiction. We were in that Star Wars phase. Everybody was so focused on sci-fi that these horror movies coming out were kind of overlooked initially. As you well, said. not only that, but the horror was changing. I mean, we were in the slasher age and there are a few movies yeah. that carry over from the 70s that have a style like this. But you put this up against Friday the 13th at that time, I think people would have gone to see Friday the 13th. A movie like this was considered slow and old-fashioned in some ways, which it was, I guess, in a way. It wasn't what was hip, but as the years have gone on, movies like this tend to wear a bit better than yep. the slasher films. It's like not not everybody's a Jason, not everybody's a Freddy Krueger, you know. There's some good slasher flicks in there, but there's a lot of them that are just kind of generic ripoffs that haven't weathered time as well. Slashers are not expensive, generally speaking, to make. Aside from the gore, you know, you hire your Tom Savini or your maybe Greg Nicotero, a young Greg Nicotero. But overall, like, they're not expensive to make. So, yeah, you know, you don't, you don't have to pay a George C. Scott to do your movie. Right, right, exactly. You're paying them in beer and hamburgers, and these kids are eager and happy to do a movie. <laughs> Richard, this is interesting. It'll circle here from what we've been doing this month. I can't remember which episode we were talking about, but I was just now looking as Jonathan was talking about the sets and everything and the special features. I thought, oh, well, who was the production designer? You know, who did that? What else did they do? You want to take a guess? No clue. Police Academy. Police Academy 2. Police Academy 3. Revenge of the Nerds 2, Police Academy 5, 
Jonathan, one of our, which movie was it, Richard, where somebody had done all the work on the Police Academy movies? Uh, it was Paul Meslansky, who was the director of Sugar Hill. Ah, oh. right. With Dominique. Oh. Yeah. Wow, those Police Academy movies more influential than I ever realized. Who knew? I would not have guessed that at all. And it's interesting, going back to the director, he directed the episode of The Wire. He directed, he would really, and mostly- Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad, yeah. So he worked, he was working steadily, but would have loved to have seen him do a little more. Um, he definitely did some genre, you mentioned species too, but so even more genre stuff because he knew what he was doing. And he said, in watching one of the featurettes, he was intimidated by George C. Scott. He was said he was a little afraid of him because George C. Scott was a big personality. He loved, I mean, he liked working with him, but he was also a little scared. He had a reputation yeah, of not yeah. being the most pleasant guy to work with on set. He was George C. Scott. He was a unique individual. Let's wrap her up. Any final words or comments? Well, I'll start off and then we can let our guest end up. I'll, I'll just say that the, I love the Changeling. It stands the test of time for me. I don't really have anything more to say other than if you want to seek this out yourself, it is, at least as we speak, it's streaming on Peacock and Tubi. And of course, there's that Severn Blu-ray, which seems to be the best way to go. And something I'm going to put on my my wish list that continues to grow. I need to upgrade my DVD, though, because I want to see those extras. This is one of those movies that I, I don't know that I would consider it one of my favorites, but it definitely is right in the middle of my all-time favorites. It's not at the top, but it's definitely something that I always seem to enjoy whenever I go back to it. And I continue to get a little bit more out of it as I continue to get older myself. Maybe I'm morphing into George C. Scott. I don't know. <laughs> I continue to enjoy it. So I would definitely recommend this movie for anyone, as long as they listen to what we're talking about. It's a slower pace. So go into it. Not expecting a bombastic, you know, film at you nonstop. It's an older film and made in an older time. But if you're in the right mindset on a cold winter day or late fall day, put a fire in the fireplace, throw the red balls out the house and enjoy the movie. <laughs> oh, saying it's an older movie made at an older time. That was the prime of my life when that was made. What does that say about today? No, you're in the Why did you have now? to word it that way? Now I'm depressed. Well. I think my feelings are clear. I just do want to quickly say your comments are both very much appreciated. I think you've shared some things about it that I may not have perceived. And so I definitely will give it another chance sometime. Jonathan, last word. I feel like this is uh, definitely underappreciated. I also feel like some films I'd rather just have someone go and call and not give them any cut. But I think, like you said, Rich, this is good to give a little disclaimer about like the pacing and all that and especially if you're someone who's used to watching films now where everything's like in your face you know jump scare every five seconds which those movies can be fun but completely different things so it might be a little jarring to them to settle into a pace like this this is aged pretty well i would put it in my top 10 of all time you know Haunted House, Ghost Stories up there. with The Haunting is probably number one for me, or at least challenging number one. Poltergeist, The Haunting, The Uninvited. Burnt Offerings is another great one. Mm. Again, another movie where the house is way too cheap to be renting. So if someone offers you a giant mansion that's too cheap, pass. Please pass, because bad things yes. happen. Um, it's been a blast talking about it with you guys. And I hope anyone who's listening who hasn't watched it will go out and check it out. Thank you, Jonathan, very much for joining us. I enjoyed the discussion. Richard, do you want to tell people what we're going to do next week? This will be our final episode for the month for our special series. 
I feel like we should be asking Jonathan is like, so, so where can people find you and stuff? But Jonathan is one of our guests who doesn't have a podcast. He doesn't, doesn't have a blog. Not yet. I'm doing some, I've definitely been doing more writing. So you may see, you may at some point. You absolutely should, because you've got a great insight. Whenever we have you on the show, you're a wealth of knowledge and you should find time. I know you've got a young daughter. Your time is, is limited. Definitely, I think a, a blog should be something you should be considering and enjoy some writing or whatever. And, and meanwhile, we'd love to have you back on the show in the future. I mean, I do a lot of writing for work, so I love the idea of doing writing that is, not, again, we talked in the beginning, well, before we came on, that it's nice to Zoom without it being related to work. So I do a fair amount of writing for work, but I, yes, the writing for, we love this stuff. So why not put pen to paper, so to speak? And Absolutely. You know, yeah. Next week, it is episode 89. We're going to wrap up our countdown to Halloween with our final guest for the month, and that'll be the amazing artist, Frederick Cooper. Now, I have several of his prints hanging on my walls. I've got two of his art books here, first of which had a forward by our mutual friend, Sam Irvin, which is how I discovered Frederick Cooper's artwork. So he's going to be on our show next week, and he has chosen a true classic for the season. I think a perfect Halloween film, The House on Haunted Hill, the original 1959 classic starring the legendary Vincent Price. Now, this movie is public domain. It is available just about everywhere, and I have found... For the most part, the quality of the prints all are about the same. This is one of those rare public domain films that I have always thought looked good no matter where you found it. It is available on Amazon Prime, Canopy, Pluto TV, Tubi, The Film Detective, etc., etc. Find it. If you find a print that doesn't look as good to you, then look somewhere else because this film is everywhere and you can get a good copy of it. Actually, it is harder to get a physical copy in your hands. There's some public domain sets out there, but the Blu-ray was available from Shout Factory in Vincent Price Collection 2, and that is now out of print and going for ridiculous prices. So, sadly, this is a film that is hard to get a hold of in on Blu-ray, for now at least. I don't think that anyone's planning on re-releasing it anytime soon, which is unfortunate. Meanwhile, streaming, reluctantly, I have to say this, streaming seems to be your best option to see this now, and it is everywhere. Do your homework. you got a week. Come back here next week and join us for episode 89 with our special guest, Frederick Cooper. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. Take care, everyone. 